Welcome, everybody, to the Internet Work Times Rounds Table Crossover. This is, I guess, the uh, meeting of the minds between um, our two teams here, uh, both of whom are Canadian Internal Medicine podcasts. So for those of you who've never heard my voice before, I'm Allison. I am a general internist and I work at the University of Toronto um, at University Health Network. And I am the creator and executive producer of the Internet Work alongside my two partners in crime, Leah Karinopoulos, who is now an ICU physician, and Zara Morali, who is also a general internist. Awesome. And I guess I'll introduce myself as well for anyone who hasn't heard the rounds table before. Uh, my name is Mike Freilich, a general internist and clinician scientist. My clinical work occurs in two main places, uh, Mount Sinai in downtown Toronto and Sault Ste. Marie, which is far north of downtown Toronto. Uh, my brother and I co-host the Rounds Table podcast. And Allison, uh, super excited that you and I are on the same podcast right now. I know this is super exciting to be sort of sharing the airwaves, I guess, um, is a way to put it. So maybe we can get started. And since we're sharing listeners and we're not sure that either of our listeners have listened to our respective podcasts, maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about the rounds table and how it got started and where you guys are now. Yeah, the rounds table has been going on for eight plus years now. Uh, I got involved when I was the chief resident at St. Mike's, which would have been maybe six and a half some odd years ago. Um, so first started by uh, Amol Verma and Fahad Razak, uh, as well as another member who I actually don't know, I think he's a surgeon or something. But um, uh, my brother and I, we took over the show almost three years ago. What do we do? Uh, we mainly talk about, you know, potentially practice changing um, studies relevant to internists, family docs, and eMERGE docs, but mainly internists. And does that make sense so far, Allison, before I keep sort of going on? Yeah, for sure. It makes total sense. Yeah. So uh, we release twice a month uh, on the months that we sort of have our act together. And um, I, I'd say the main listenership is residents and uh, physicians and hopefully some um, med students here and there. But most of the content is higher level because we really want to, you know, sink our teeth into recently published clinical trials that are potentially practice changing. And then how about you, Allison? What is your uh, origin story for the internet work? Yeah, so I actually started the internet work. Um, it sort of started out as an idea when I was an R1 doing my residency at McMaster University. Um, and it was at the time when podcasts were sort of just starting to get popular. Um, Serial had just come out um, and that was all the rage at the time. And so I was actually listening to um, a Grand Rounds that we had. And I remember it distinctly on osteo. It was on osteoporosis. And at the time I was like, man, I don't really know that I want to be here, but this would be great if it would just be like portable, like a podcast. And so that's kind of where the idea all started. And so it actually was my scholarly project during residency. And the idea was to create sort of scripts that would mimic uh, senior teaching uh, overnight, because I always felt that that was really high yield. And so over time, it's now become a learner-generated podcast where we have residents from all over Canada 
write effectively teaching scripts that we then record and release over our podcast. Um, And to date, it's included almost all the Canadian schools. I think we're still missing a few, but it's been really great to have engagement from internal medicine residents sort of all across Canada um, to really participate in sort of the education of other trainees um, at various levels of their training. So I think that's been really great. Um, and then more recently, we've kind of had a bit of a spinoff series called the Internist Guide 2. That's been more of a Q&A session tailored towards the R3s or the third year residents who are preparing for the Royal College. And that really goes um, over some higher yield guidelines. Um, and I think that tailors to sort of more advanced um clinicians or clinicians who are sort of later in the stage in training. Um, and then in addition to that, we've also created sort of a digital team um, and that's included infographic producers and designers, um, sound editors, and then as well site teams at uh, four schools across Canada that help us to sustain the podcast through recruiters, recruiting of writers, um, following up on podcast script, helping with deadlines and helping connect individuals to mentors. So it's become quite a large production since we first started, since we first started, and I really wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, it's impressive. I think, uh, it, it certainly takes a village to build a successful podcast and your village spans the country. Uh, whereas for John and I, we got, you know, a flag up in Toronto and a flag up in Calgary where he works. Um, but certainly looking to expand not only our listenership, but also, you know, building it and uh, and growing the podcast. That's cool to hear. I actually didn't realize about the spinoff series because certainly I mean, guidelines are just so undigestible. I get them in principle, but it's kind of like, I'm not going to read this. So it's terrific to hear that you have a podcast to help with that. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a good point. Guidelines can be uh, tricky, to say the least. Um, But maybe now is the time to sort of segue thinking about how we use uh, or how you use medical podcasts sort of in your day-to-day sort of life as a clinician scientist. And then also, you know, what has the response really been to your podcast that you've put out there? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I'm wondering, huh, is anyone out there listening? But we do have, you know, stats. Um, so I know people are listening. I think it's always so fun when I like bump into someone like, hey, we actually listen to your, I listen to your podcast. Now, truth be told, that doesn't happen all often, but it sure is exciting. And I think from my standpoint, and I think my brother as well, actually recording the podcast really forces us to stay up to date on literature. Um, Otherwise, I probably wouldn't, you know, be as up to date as I am. Um, So that's sort of like a a personal benefit of of co-hosting the rounds table. And it's always terrific to hear from listeners, um, get their feedback, what they like, what they hate. Um, So that's sort of, yeah, I guess that's how I would summarize it. But I don't know how it is for you. I feel like with your larger listenership and larger team, there's probably, I don't know, like more feedback or how do you get feedback from your listeners? Yeah, I mean, truth be told, I think a lot of it is also just um, word of mouth uh, between people who listen. Um, And, you know, we've had a little bit of scholarly work come out of it just in terms of the original production and sort of how we got the whole project together. But a lot of it is really, one, the listenership continuing to grow. 
um, to some of the learners giving us feedback, which sometimes I just feel I'm, I'm, I'm humbled in, in a sense because I'm like, wow, I can't believe you listened to this. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that keeps us going, I think, is that people continue to want to write podcasts for us. You know, they reach out to us from schools um, who don't have site teams and say, hey, I've been listening to this. Can I write for you? Um, and so that has really been a great sort of byproduct of continuing to grow is that more people want to become involved um, and write write a podcast for us. So that's that's been really great. Um, and yeah, I, I would agree with you that um, even just in recording the podcast, even though we're not writing all of them, I always learn something new. Um, and the great thing about how our residents write them is that they're from the perspective of people who are currently in training. And so that really gives me an idea of, you know, where are they coming from? Because sometimes when you're getting a little bit more senior in your career, you kind of just forget, you know, where, what did I know when I was, you know, a CC3 or what did I know when I was an R1 and what would be useful? And so when they put their podcast together, it's structured in a way that really is level appropriate. And it also helps me with helping to define how I approach teaching when I go on to the clinical wards um, and I have learners sort of from all different levels. So um, I agree with you just by just making the podcast and producing the podcast. I learned so much from everyone who's, you know, been so kind to participate. Yeah, I I mean, it totally makes sense. And um, I can think back to when I was a resident and I mean, some staff are great teachers, some staff are not, but it's the staff physicians that can remember, okay, what as an R1 did I know versus did I not know and how can I give them this teaching point? Um, that part is key for sure. And it makes sense when you talk about um, the content generation and um, and the audience for your podcasts. You know, I'm now almost seven years post-residency uh, and I mean, staying up to date, is impossible. I've accepted that fact. I know for me, my sort of go-to is really, like I said, doing the podcast, uh, Twitter as well. I mean, Twitter can be a bit of a dumpster fire at times, but I do find it's a nice way to sort of passively have things pushed to me that I wouldn't otherwise see. I'm curious from your standpoint, um, what are the tools you sort of use to stay up to date? Yeah, um, I would totally agree with you there. I think Twitter has a very distinct ability to really provide a lot of information in a very concise manner. One of the things that I really like on Twitter is after each conference, they'll often write, um, you know, like a top 10 papers or top five papers that come out of the conference. And so we think that's a really nice way to just try and keep on top of some of the emerging evidence that's coming out for whatever condition or whatever subspecialty at the time. Um, I do get a few journal pushes um, into my inbox, but, you know, there's just so much information. And I think, you know, that's the beauty and maybe the curse of medicine is that there's always more to learn. And, you know, even now I'm like, ah, I don't know, like, what do I, what do I need to know? What should I know? How do I know? What am I supposed to know? And, um, I think that was another reason for me to start this podcast was that I was like, well, you know, at the very least, if I follow a podcast that is internal medicine oriented, then something gets pushed to the top of my feed and maybe it's not relevant today. Maybe it'll be relevant never, or maybe it'll be relevant next week. But, you know, at the very least, I'm learning something. And so 
that was another impetus sort of to start the podcast when I did as an R1 when, you know, the learning goals are so broad and the um, structure of teaching is now very different from, say, medical school or your undergraduate career. Yeah, and it's interesting what you say about the sort of top five, top ten. I don't know when top five, top ten, top whatever became such an ingrained part of like social media and things I will click on, but it really works out well. And whenever I see a ooh top five randomized trials or top five whatever and non-medicine stuff, it is so hard not to click it. And it makes me think, geez, maybe we should be putting out more of those top five, top ten because it just seems like people gravitate towards them. But I, I don't know if you're a sucker for those types of headlines as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sucker for clickbait. So uh, the algorithm knows me, Mike. You're an easy one to solve then, I guess. And it's interesting as well. I think recently with the rounds table, what we've changed is that we were trying to only um, put out podcast episodes on randomized trials. I've spent so much time in grad school and then some uh, learning about observational studies and real world data and blah, blah, blah. Those studies are fun to do, but they're almost never going to change practice. I, I have to be honest with myself. And certainly throughout the pandemic, I got, I've gotten more involved with uh, clinical trials, um, which has been a terrific learning experience, but not what we're going to talk about today. But that has been the main impetus for why we've decided, you know what? We're, we're going to try to only record and cover randomized trials because that is what you need to change practice. Not always, but very often. But, but I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, um, I, I would agree. I think um, as somebody who's really not a clinical trialist or researcher in that field at all, you know, as someone who practices clinical medicine and likes to look at the evidence, I do think it's really important to understand the methodology and, you know, the inclusion criteria, the exclusion criteria, you know, the ways in which they came up with their trial protocol. And I love that rounds table does that because ultimately, you know, that's what helps establish guidelines, I think, in, in a lot of cases, maybe not all. Um, and so when you ask questions like, why are we trying to get to Ramipril 10 milligrams? And why, why not five milligrams? Why not 2.5 milligrams? The answer is, um, well, that, that's just what the trial did, and that's what's been adopted into the guidelines. And it's not that we don't know that 5 or 2.5 milligrams are ineffective or less effective. That's just not what was studied, and that's not where the effect came from. So I think what's great about the rounds table is that you provide an avenue that's easily digestible and accessible to really understand those nuances in the trial, which then better helps you understand or at least sort of maybe gauge the nuance when applying it to your clinical practice. Yeah, I appreciate that. We, um, you know, I sometimes send some of the episodes to my mentors to, to get their feedback on. And uh, Dave, you're a link. If you're listening, his feedback was too much method stuff. He didn't use the exact words of this is too nerdy, but I think that's what he was alluding to. So John and I have backed up a little bit to not get too deep into the weeds. Um, but if you want to understand these trials, you got to get at least a tiny bit of nuance to it. But it is hard to talk about methods and still keep it interesting and engaging. And this is coming from somebody who loves methods. Um, and it's also interesting when I think about what 
other specialties have done. Like, look at the Emerge uh, ICU and sort of NEFJC world. I kind of feel like they've made this stuff work really well within their specialties and made it cool and engaging, which makes me wonder, how do we get there for general internal medicine? Yeah, totally. Um, I don't know. Um, And I've been thinking about this a lot too, about how do we garner sort of a larger community of practice in general internal medicine that's not you know, country specific or school specific, you know, how do we bring us together beyond, you know, some of the bigger conferences and have more engagement? And I think that's what, you know, nephrology, um, hematology, emergency medicine do so well is that, you know, they are really engaging with people all across the world um, with different levels of practice, with different interests. And I think that that is the reason for their success. It makes everyone feel like they're part of something bigger themselves, that bigger than themselves, that they're working towards, you know, a common goal. And I think for internal medicine, that's something that we can definitely harness a little bit more in the online community. Um, and what that looks like, I'm not sure. I'm open to any brainstorming ideas if anyone's listening to this. Um, but I really think that that is where their power lies and how much they work together and the collaborative properties that they use to really, you know, enhance the communication, enhance the culture, enhance the community of practice within which they work. Yeah, I, I agree. I think one of the really cool things that NEFJC did is, uh, I don't know if you ever watched NCAA basketball, or maybe you do now, but, you know, an undergrad, um, I can think about with my roommates, and we'd have like our brackets for which basketball teams we thought were, were going to win during March Madness. Um, and it was a ton of fun. And NEFJC did the same thing, but for what will the top, you know, nephro article be of the year? And you sort of like battle off between the two and pick your bracket um, for, for what you think is going to win. And I think making it fun and making it engaging goes so, so far. I think a, a big thing that ICU and the ER world have done is putting out like the newsletters that they have and maybe newsletter isn't the perfect way to describe them. I guess some of them are more like blogs. So, you know, I I have, I've thought a bit about like, is it worthwhile putting out a newsletter or putting out a blog? For me, it's just so much easier to listen to something than it is to read something. But then when I talk to some of the more junior trainees, for them, it's like, no, no, I want to see something. I want a short video, and maybe that's in the TikTok era. Um, but I haven't gotten there just yet, and I assume your podcast isn't now spinning off into TikTok short videos. Yeah, no, we're uh, we're not on TikTok yet, but we are on Instagram, which has uh, reels. So I guess technically we could, uh, but uh, I don't I don't have the skills for that as of yet to make it like cool, like Dr. Glockenflecken or something. Um, but I agree with you. You know, there is always a reason to consider a diverse set of resources for people who have different preferences. So, you know, the way that we've done that is really by harnessing our website, putting up infographics, which are beautifully designed. Um, but maybe there's more that we can do. I don't know. We're not we're not on TikTok yet. So if somebody wants to take that on again, www.theinternetwork.com, just reach out to us. Agreed. Agreed. I have TikTok, Allison. I've used it once or twice. 
and uh, and then I stopped. So I got it, but not a user of it. Yeah, don't have Instagram. I deleted Facebook a few years ago. I didn't miss it, and I saw Instagram as being too similar to Facebook, which would be a massive time sink for me. So to your point, we probably need some young blood on the rounds table as well. <laughs> yeah, I, we're sounding so old. I'm like, I started this podcast when I was a resident, and now I'm old. What's TikTok? I don't even know what you guys are talking about. Um, no, I'm just sort of kidding. Um, but we we really wanted to take this opportunity to do a crossover to air, you know, episodes from our respective podcasts on each other's platforms. And so this has been really, really great chatting with you, Mike. Um, I hope to do it again soon, maybe open for more collaboration, with whatever that looks like moving forward. Um, and and yeah, it's been it's been awesome. Thanks. Yes, yes. Thank you, Allison. Uh, let's do this again. And yeah, looking forward to finding a way for, I don't know, us to create the next NEF JC for internal medicine or something like that. Welcome to the Internet Work and thank you for listening. Today, we present a special episode from The Rounds Table. This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, John and I are here to talk to you about two practice-changing trials related to chronic kidney disease. John, what's up first? So first, we're going to talk about empagliflozin in patients with chronic kidney disease. This was the Empa Kidney Collaborative Group, published New England Journal of Medicine, November 2022. Impressive. You know I love SGLT2 inhibitors. Okay, what was the research question? This question was asking, does empagliflozin improve outcomes in patients with chronic kidney disease? Spoiler alert. It does. Okay, anyway, um, why is this important, John? Lots of reasons. So, I mean, chronic kidney disease is common and trying to slow down renal dysfunction, ultimately trying to prevent patients from having to get dialysis or transplant becomes really important. We know that some medications, in particular ACEs and ARBs, can improve outcomes for patients with chronic kidney disease. We also know that SGLT2 inhibitors have been shown to improve outcomes in patients with diabetes-related chronic kidney disease. But there's other causes for chronic renal dysfunction. So do SGLT2 inhibitors work in other entities? The question here is trying to answer that. Awesome. What was the study design? This was a randomized controlled trial, a double-blind placebo-controlled, 241 centers in eight countries. The patient population, so patients had to have had a GFR between 20 to 45 regardless of the amount of albuminuria, or a GFR of 45 to 90 with an ACR of at least 200 at a screening visit. Most of these patients would have been on an ACE or an ARB at baseline. They did exclude some patients, including those with polycystic kidney disease and if you had a prior renal transplant. Now, from the procedure perspective, patients had a pre-randomization run-in for 15 weeks and they were given a supply of placebo tablets. And then after at least six weeks of run-in, patients were then randomized to either 10 milligrams of empagliflozin once daily or placebo. 
There were a number of different outcomes that were considered, but the primary outcome was the first occurrence of progression of kidney disease or death from cardiovascular causes. Now, this was a composite, um, and so when it came to the progression, this was defined as initiation of maintenance dialysis or receipt of transplant or a sustained GFR decrease to less than 10 or a sustained decrease from baseline GFR by at least 40% or death from renal causes. And the sustained definition was based on two consecutive follow-ups at least 30 days apart. Uh, there were a number of secondary outcomes and this was an intention to treat analysis. Awesome, so really what we have here is a impressively large double-blind placebo-controlled randomized trial of individuals, some had diabetes, some did not, all of them had chronic kidney disease, and the primary outcome was this composite of first occurrence um, to progression of renal disease or death from cardiovascular causes. Is that right? You got it. All right. And what did the included patients look like? So they had initially screened about 8,500 patients, uh, and ultimately 6,609 underwent randomization. The mean age was 64, 33% of patients were women, 54% did not have diabetes. Now for the causes of chronic kidney disease, about 31% were due to diabetes, 21% due to hypertension or renal vascular causes, and then about 25% had glomerular causes for chronic kidney disease. The average GFR was 37, and 35% of the patient population had GFRs of less than 30. The mean urine ACR was 329, and patients were followed up for a median of two years. Okay, I always have to look up um, the cutoffs for urine ACR. That sounds pretty high, but do you have a semblance of like what is sort of uh, moderate or severe, or do you also have to look that up? Yeah, I, I look it up every time to remind myself what the conversion is to like that 24-hour, um, but, you know, moderate levels of proteinuria at least. Cool. Sounds good. I'm convinced. All right. What were the main results? So they had to stop the trial early, not because of bad things, but because of good things. The primary outcome, so progression of chronic kidney disease or death from cardiovascular causes occurred in 432 of the 3,300 patients in the empagliflozin group, that was 13%, compared with 558 out of 3,305, which was 16.9% in the placebo group. An absolute reduction of 3.8%, hazard ratio was 0.72, statistically significant. Um, we know there were a number of secondary outcomes. Uh, some of them included uh, finding lower rates of hospitalization in patients who are on empagliflozin. Uh, they did not show a significant difference in death from cardiovascular causes, specifically as part of a secondary out point, uh, outcome. rather. Um, what they did show was that the effects were consistent among patients with or without diabetes, as well as regardless of what the GFR was at randomization. There was a signal that perhaps there was a greater risk reduction in patients with higher albuminuria at baseline. Um, and they also showed an effect that there was actually an initially a higher rate of GFR reduction in the empagliflozin group. But after 16 months, placebo GFR reduction was worse uh, compared with those on empagliflozin. Now, from a safety perspective, there were higher rates of DKA, so six patients compared with one patient in the placebo group. Um, lower limb amputations, they saw that 28 patients in the empagliflozin group compared with 19 in the placebo group. Uh, there were no differences in some other outcomes, though, like hyperkalemia, uh, acute kidney injury, urinary tract infection. Yeah, really impressive stuff. Yeah, a nearly 4% absolute risk reduction um, is really impressive. 
what are some limitations um, in for this study? I mean, I think it was a pretty good trial. Like, I guess maybe one of the considerations is that this data only goes into two years. So what happens after that? But I'm sure like, you know, that data is going to be coming out sometime soon. But I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's too many other things that I was kind of worried about with this trial. I agree with you. It's it's hard to criticize a double-blind, randomized trial. Sure, you could criticize the composite outcome, but still, like those are clinically meaningful components of the composite outcome. So I agree. This is very impressive. Uh, Take-home point for you? Well, this study really shows that empagliflozin is associated with improved outcomes for patients with chronic kidney disease, regardless of whether or not they have diabetes. And again, that number needed to treat based on the absolute risk reduction would be 25, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, very impressive. Is this practice changing for you? I think so. I mean, we don't have a lot to offer patients with chronic kidney disease, but here's pretty clear evidence that SGLT2 inhibitors, in this case specifically empagliflozin, uh, are going to be an important class of medications for these patients. I 100% agree, right? Like obviously ACE, ARBs, they are really impressive. Uh, what do you do next? Clearly, the answer is SGLT2. And I think this study has also shown me in terms of the lower GFR cutoff for starting these meds. Uh, GFR 20. And I bet you could get away with a little bit lower than that. Yeah. And it is going to be interesting because there are also trials looking at lower GFR cutoffs, including patients who are already on dialysis. Um, You know, that data is not yet available, but that's coming down the pipeline. Yeah. Wow. What a blockbuster class of medications. And no, we are not sponsored by the makers of SGLT2s. But we do have a sponsor for the rounds table. Um, This episode specifically has been brought to you by Sault Ste. Marie Physician Recruitment and Retention Program, a.k.a. Sioux Med. Whoa, uh, we have a sponsor? I know, we seem so much more legit now. As you know, I've been locuming in the Sioux for the past seven plus years. Now, you've talked about the Sioux before, but let's hear some more. Agreed. Brittany uh, says I talk about it too much, but clearly our sponsors don't mind. So, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, locuming there. And as it turns out, they're hiring. They're looking for physicians in family medicine, internal medicine, surgery, psychiatry, neurology, just to name a few. And what about opportunities for trainees? Absolutely. We have electives available for both residents and med students, in particular family medicine residents, internal medicine residents. So if you want to learn more, you can reach out to us on Twitter or email me at mike.fralick at utoronto.ca. Right, listeners. Well, there goes the first sponsor, but they'll be back. I can feel it. And back to the research. So we will keep talking about chronic kidney disease. Uh, And this study that I will be discussing was also published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was called the Stop ACE uh, trial, uh, published November 2022. All right. What was the research question here? For patients with a GFR less than 30, does stopping RAS inhibitor, be that ACE or ARB, increase or stabilize the GFR? Ooh, very interesting. Why was this important to you? Chronic kidney disease affects so many of the patients that you and I care for. And I think we, you know, we know that obviously ACE inhibitors slow the decline in renal function, especially for those with, you know, stage four, stage five um, chronic kidney disease. But it's unclear uh, among patients with a GFR less than 30. And I'm often faced with the question of, okay, now the GFR is less than 30. Do I stop the ACE inhibitor? 
I often do. I don't know if that's the right thing. Yeah, this is quite clinically relevant. Uh, okay, how did they do the study? This was a randomized parallel group, open label, multi-centered randomized trial in the UK. Uh, it was not published uh, or funded, pardon me, by industry. Um, obviously, why would industry want you to stop any of their meds? Um, the population uh, included adults with a GFR less than 30. And the GFR had to be falling at least um, two milliliters or more in the past two years. Uh, and of course, they had to be receiving an ACE, ARB, or both um, for the past six months. Uh, exclusions, uh, individuals with uncontrolled hypertension, or if they had a recent MI or stroke in the past three months. Uh, as noted, the intervention here was, do we continue the ACE or ARB? And the comparator was stopping the ACE or ARB. The primary outcome was looking at um, the GFR at three years, and it was analyzed with an intention to treat analysis. Okay, uh, so some of these patients could have been on both, is that right? I know, I couldn't believe that. I'm like, uh, on what planet are we giving both ACEs and ARBs? If there's one thing that Dave Yearlink has certainly taught me, it's that these medications cause hyperkalemia. You never want to give them together. So I found that surprising as well. Yeah, okay. Uh, so what did table one look like? So uh, they screened uh, 17,000 patients actually using a healthcare database and they identified 1,200 eligible patients. They randomized just over 400, um, lost the follow-up was pretty low at less than 2%. Average age of patients was 65, 68% were men, 15% uh, uh, were non-Caucasian, 33% had diabetes, and 22% had uh, GN. And in terms of their renal function, you know, sort of 70% had a GFR ranging from 15 to 30. And of course, the other 30% had a GFR less than 15. Okay, so what did they show? So at year three, um, the GFR um, was reduced by 13 in the group that continued an ACE inhibitor or ARB and 13 in the control group, all right? So this rate of decline was um, almost identical whether or not you continued on the ACE or you did not. And what was really impressive was that the rate of end-stage renal disease or renal replacement therapy, this is a secondary outcome, occurred in 56% of patients who continued an ACE and 62% in those who stopped, right? So we're talking potentially a 6% absolute risk increase of end-stage renal disease or renal uh, replacement, albeit with wide confidence intervals and similar rates of adverse events. Okay, that's a pretty impressive secondary outcome. Uh, what were some of the limitations here? So this was an unblinded trial, uh, thus all sorts of biases can come up along the way. It was also relatively small, um, and this study was performed in the UK. Uh, who knows how well this will translate to other jurisdictions. Okay, uh, what was the take on? It seems really reasonable to be continuing someone's ACE or ARB when their GFR drops below 30, okay? It doesn't seem like continuing that is gonna lead to you know, a precipitous decline in the GFR or potentially adverse events. And if anything, it might improve the rate of end-stage renal disease or renal replacement. Alrighty, practice changing for you? It is, it completely is, because I think I was inappropriately um, stopping uh, people's ACE or ARB as their GFR, you know, sort of fell into the low 20s because I worried about the safety of continuing it. And boy, was I wrong. Yeah, I think sure, smaller study, but like pretty impressive. I think keeping our patients on these medications are important. Yeah, and you're right. It is a small study. 
I just have so much respect for these authors because it's really hard to do a randomized trial like this and it's so beautifully pragmatic um, and these types of trials you know you don't get any industry support for them so I wonder about how long it's going to take until we get another trial so for me this trial alone is enough for me to change my practice um, but it'll be interesting to see what other studies show if indeed they are performed. Yeah, sounds pretty good. November, good month for kidney uh, research, that's for sure. Totally agree. So now moving on to the good stuff, uh, John, what's caught your eye recently? Uh, Well, I know you've always told me about that neighborhood cat that likes your backyard. This is a story from the CBC in Nova Scotia, and it's about Oscar the cat who uh, actually goes to a neighborhood hospice. And some of the patients at the end of life just really enjoy being able to spend some time with Oscar. It's a nice little story. We'll post it on our website. Right on. Yeah, there's also like a support dog that sometimes visits uh, Mount Sinai Hospital. I feel like it's great for the patients, but also great for the physicians and, and nurses. It's nice just to have a cute, cuddly dog walking around the wards. I love it when they bring those dogs around. And not to like uh, do another good thing, but did you see at Toronto General that there was a raccoon that had to be escorted out of the building the other day? I did. I did. It's funny you mentioned that because as I was thinking about the potential good stuff, I was thinking, geez, there's some sort of raccoon story on Twitter that I saw. So, yes, I certainly I certainly know what you're talking about. Um, so on my end, it's um, a video by uh, Glockham Flecken. Have you seen any of his stuff uh, on YouTube? He is hilarious. Agreed. Yeah. He has a really good video on uh, academic publishing where... You know, he's he's telling his friend, oh, he got this paper published. And his friend is like, oh, like, that's that's awesome. So like, like, they're going to like pay you for this. And and he's like, well, no, I I have to pay to to get it published. He's like, oh, okay, but like the grants are going to like pay for it. Right. No, no, no. Like I have to pay for it, even though I did the research and did the whole thing and wrote it up and blah, blah. Anyway, it was just something that I could chuckle about and cry at the same time as a clinician scientist. So it was good stuff, bad stuff, but overall good stuff because it made me laugh. That's great. I'll check that one out. Awesome. All right, John, take care and we'll talk again soon. All right. Talk to you later, Mike. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.